Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. The home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween-y. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I am one of the hosts. Yes, he is, and my name is Miss Melmoy, and I am the other host. Yes, she is. And tonight we are coming to you with episode 114 to talk about what else on this Friday the 13th in October than possibly the biggest horror crossover event of the genre, Freddy vs. Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, as some listeners of the show will know, our 11th installment of our special Friday the 13th episodes that we do every time that date rolls around on the calendar. Uh, we started way back in, well, I think the first one was in 2016 when we started mm-hmm. the show. Yeah. With the original Friday the 13th, and now we are almost to the end of the franchise as it stands right now. This is the penultimate entry in the existing series. And as we'll get into, um, the record setter in a lot of ways for this franchise, Mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to budget and money. Yeah. It's gonna be a good time. I think this is really fitting that this is the particular entry that ended up being um, for the Friday the 13th in October. Yes. This just this makes sense. <clears throat> and you know, go big for your October Friday the thirteenth. I also yeah. hear there's like some crazy ass moon thing supposed to be happening this month. For those yeah. of you into that sort of thing. Well, there's the annular eclipse, and then mm-hmm. there's the some version of a blood moon over Halloween weekend. Ooh. Yeah. Creepy. So, uh, it's quite the October. <laughs> it almost makes up for the uh, Halloween we lost during the pandemic where it was a Saturday and daylight savings. Mm-hmm. Which was so rude. You can't do that over Halloween. Yeah. What's happened? To, didn't that, that was, in our college years, there was also a Halloween that was daylight savings, right? Yeah, it happens occasionally because I remember one, I mean, I'm sure there was more than just the one, but I specifically remember one when I was a kid. Um, And like for a while, just thinking like, oh, yeah, like daylight savings and Halloween are the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, Yes, it's going to be quite the month. This is quite the movie. Uh, But before we get into the ultimate fright fight. Uh, let's do a read, watch, listen, or headline sh- check-in. It is peak time of the year. October never dies for Splatter Chatter. But, you know, in particular, it doesn't die in October. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on. What have you been up to? Well, I just this morning finished Whalefall hey. by Daniel Krause. Um, who was the co-writer on Ship of Water and and did some other things. Um, It was good. It was very stressful and tense. It is a um, body horror thriller type um, novel about this kid who's like, I thought he was in his early 20s. I realized at the end of the book he was actually like 18 or 19, I think. Oh. Um, 
but he's around that age who um, it opens with him going to uh, try and salvage his dad's remains from the bottom of the ocean off the coast of like where they used to go in California. Um, and in the process, he is swallowed by a sperm whale alive, whole. You know, like just casual Jonah style. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the rest of the book is him dealing with that and trying to find a way, if there is a way out. Um, so it's very good, very tense, easily a page turner. Um, working through October, watched a lot since uh, since last we spoke. I think one of the ones that I watched that I found most interesting, too, is, um, I believe it's pronounced Quadrat, which came out in 2022. Yeah, okay. Which is exorcist style kind of movie. This guy is a um, Islamic religious leader in Indonesia. Um, you know, in the very beginning, he his son is killed by a demon. He goes to jail for like supposedly his son's death. When he gets out of jail, he goes back to the village where he sort of like grew up and like studied, only to find that the same demon is uh, you know preying on a sort of vulnerable family in the village and it's up to him to to stop it um i just think everyone should go watch it because it's very good in that regard it also like it i don't even want to say it takes a turn because the turn is sort of gradual until you get to the end and you realize what this movie is trying to do but think like pope's exorcist Oh, yeah. so I turned her. Yeah. So that was good. And then I recently just watched Something in the Dirt for my Moorhead and Benson film, which was very good. Definitely a pandemic movie. Um, yeah, I just read your review before we sat down to record. Yeah. So those are my two big ones, uh, I think, of, of note. Um, yeah. Since, since last we checked in. And those are both films for the Hooptober challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, yeah, we mentioned that we were both doing the challenge on our episode for the faculty. Um, and that's, yeah, I've basically been watching movies for that challenge. Um, my Benson and Moorhead that I did the other night was The Endless. I've heard that's very good. It's real. It was really good. I've loved everything I've watched from them so far. Like, yeah. I find them really good, interesting filmmakers. Yeah. Um, I'm very, very excited for something in the dirt. I remember, like, at the time it came out, like people be like, "Yeah, it's very pandemic-y. and I was like, mm, "Not right now." Yeah. Um, no, it definitely is um, sort of grim that way. Yeah. Just because they're the only two people in the movie. It takes place mainly in, like, a sort of dingy apartment, so. Nice. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, The Endless was was great. Um, it's, I guess it's, you would call it a cult movie, but there's a question mark around that mm-hmm. for a lot of the film. Um, and then you sort of kind of get the descents or you have to decide as the viewer if something else is going on. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little bit of a fun turn as well. Um, but really great, really sort of like beautiful. 
Um, and uh, another film that I watched for the challenge, and that is also um, sort of new and in the conversation right now, is Saw X. Mm-hmm. Saw 10, however one chooses to pronounce it. Um, saw eyeball sucking trap. <laughs> yeah, saw eyeball sucking trap as um is on the poster and whatnot. And I've talked a little bit about before, like I was a huge Saw fan, like back in the heyday of the franchise um, and like dug deep into those movies and then sort of like faded as the movies themselves started to fade. Mm-hmm. But I've always sort of kept up with it. And this was, this felt like one of the films that made me initially love the series. It feels very OG. Um, it's set between the first and the second films. And so Tobin Bell is back, like as an alive jigsaw. Shawnee Smith is back as Amanda. Um, Amanda. <laughs> I love Amanda. <laughs> it's a name I haven't heard in a while. Um, I once wrote an essay about Amanda for a now defunct horror website. Um, I wonder if I still have it somewhere. Damn find that dig it up and brush it up a bit it was it was actually i shouldn't say essay it was more just like an ode to amanda i love amanda (laughs) say i will this essay i will uh but yeah it was good the traps you know as always were clever but like it was also sort of weirdly um like human driven Mm -hmm. uh, which was sort of an interesting turn on things so yeah i liked it i liked it a lot cool um and i'm very curious so at the time of this recording uh we're two days away from the wide release of the exorcist believer i have seen some things yes (laughs) by the time this episode comes out on friday the 13th the film that film will have been out for a week so this is going to be an interesting time capsule thing because reviews were released uh last in this morning yeah and they're not good no i the first one i saw was the indie wire one which was like okay like this has the tone of like sort of like i'm angry and on the internet and i have a lot to say so i'll wait till i get more data and then like the next one i saw was horror queers one of the the co-hosts of that was like yeah i was on board for the first act and then it just snowballed downhill from there I think that was the one I saw first. Trace Thurman mm-hmm. review. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Indowire one was very scathing, mainly because it seems like the film has a probably unintentional, but who knows? Because I haven't seen it yet. Um, anti-abortion message. Oh, I saw something briefly about that and then like didn't dig into that a ton. But I was like, that's curious. And yeah. I don't know that we need that. Yeah, so I don't know. I was planning on seeing it this weekend, and I like probably still will, but that's definitely like given me pause to be like, is this a VOD situation? I I was planning to go on Friday night after work, and now I'm like, do I just wait? I am a little bit and. I, I will need to kill some time this weekend, so it's like, it might be worth it, but I was just like, yeah, this might be a... Yeah, that's, maybe like if, because you're going away this weekend. Yeah. 
Maybe if you find like a cheap matinee or something. I know. That's why I was like, I will go if it's five dollars. That's good. And I was like, yeah, um, I could go Friday night, but I don't know if I want to pay Friday night prices for a movie that's getting these kind of reviews. If it is like as bad as the reviews and that translated translates in the box office, it will probably go on to VOD before Halloween. That is a good point. Because self life for these things these days is like Enfield was on VOD within like three weeks, I think. Uh, Demir was on VOD within like a month, so um, that is true. Probably it wouldn't be too long of a wait, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, um, especially since like they had committed to a whole trilogy of new Exorcist films by David Gordon Green. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I don't know that they've officially like. I don't know if that Blumhouse has said forget that. But I like, think it's going to depend on how much money they. Yeah. They make back, but um. Yeah, I was honestly because I was a little curious because I looked earlier this week to be like, oh, what are the reviews? And I was like, there are no reviews. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good sign. <laughs> I was like, that's a pretty late embargo date. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll see how it goes. That's kind of a bummer, but it is what it is. Oh, interestingly, in other trilogy news, did you see that, um, the new Strangers trilogy that they're doing were all filmed back to back, they're done, and all three of them are going to come out next year? Peter Jackson was quietly... <laughs> making the new strangers films um they just today released i think like three stills and the official titles um but uh yeah i'm I'm like well maybe we'll trade in the exorcist trilogy and just go ham on this i mean it's interesting because like part of me is like you know i like something that they can trust to be like well we've done it so we're going to release it but also if it's you know anything like the original Strangers, I can't imagine it's a huge production or budget. Right. It's so so maybe it's worth it to just do three. Yeah, and I like the idea that we were planned, written, and filmed all together, so they'll probably be pretty Yeah, no, well, that's, and that's, like, what's yeah. nice is, like, it's not like, oh, yeah, we'll do one and see how it goes. It's like, no, like, here is a, a, a story told yeah. three films. Um. I'm, I'm definitely down with that. I you like know, that. like Wicked Part 1 and Part 2. Oh, my God. A horror of a different kind. Which I think had, like, 10 days left of filming before everything shut down, so. Well, now that things are kicking back up again, then I guess they can do what they need to do. <sighs> well, um, do we have any other major news or things we want to touch on? I don't think so. I would all our all our major we're gonna have a huge debrief at our next episode with all the shit we're doing this month. So Yes. We have both packed ourselves to the gills this October with both joint and separate spooky events. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, it'll be a lot to report about when we get back. Yeah, let's let's not waste any further time. Let's move right into our main discussion on uh freddie versus jason we're going to kick things off with our opening question which is of course 
when did you first see this film and what were your first impressions? So let me tell you something that like blew my mind. <laughs> that this film came out in 2003. 20 years ago. I was convinced it came out when I was in high school. I think because it was just kind of popular when I was in high school. I remember the teacher in the film classroom like had a Freddy vs. Jason poster. And that would have like that was like the first time, you know, it would have been like 2007 or 2008 or something like that. So I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, this movie like just came out. Right. Like, yeah, like, sure. Like this came out recently. No, it came out in 2003. <laughs> That's yeah. staying power. Um, but Matt yeah, I don't really. That had that uh, in your classroom. Hell yeah. Yeah, she she was a big I mean, this is the same teacher who had us. um she used Halloween H2O as a way to, like, teach us how to do story treatments. You've talked about this before. Yeah. Yeah, because we watched, we read the story treatment of the opening of Halloween H2O. Because if you read the treatment, that part is very detailed. And the rest of the movie is kind of less detailed. So clearly, like, he was very focused on that cold open. Um, but we read that intro treatment and then watched the movie and compared them. Um she also had us watch the original When a Stranger Calls, and I forget why. But probably because the cold open for that is the like the what everyone takes away yeah. from the movie. Yeah, and we only really watched the cold open, and then she's like, "We can watch the rest if you want," but I don't. The rest is kind of of the original is kind of boring. Yeah. Anyway, so I was very. I think it's just because of that class. Like maybe it was higher on my brain. I was like, oh yeah, like Freddy vs. Jason. There's the poster. Like I watched the movie with friends. Um, but no, I was shocked to find out it came out in 2003. That sounds wrong to me. Yeah. Wrong. It did come out in 2003. I remember being interested and in wanting to go see it in theaters and not being allowed. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think I was like, this movie came out in the summer, I think. So I, I would have been like 12, just about to be 13. Um, and yeah, I just think neither of my parents like wanted to take me to see it. And I remember being bummed about that. Because um, the hype was massive. Yes, I do remember the hype. And like, I think in my my lizard brain memory, I'm just like... Transposing the hype. Yeah, I'm just like confusing dates. But I do remember the hype around it being huge. I remember seeing the trailer for it. Yes. Like, I remember watching the trailer, the shot of them in the burning like barn or whatever it is, um, you know, and all that stuff. And I remember seeing posters at the movie theater. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I think this was a blockbuster rental, like, you know, maybe a couple years later, whenever, like, the weird, strange time when it was like, okay, now you may see this movie. Yeah. Now, now we will rent it. And I was like, hell yeah. Um, and watched it, and I, I, I loved this movie, like, a lot when I first saw it. And now I think I, like tolerate it and find it fun (laughs) well when you're like sort of i don't hate it but your initial data points of like spooky films are like you know it's 2004 2005 i'm assuming like sometime around then is when you get it from blockbuster like you know (laughs) Yeah. yeah but that was the thing like i remember being like oh yeah like 
this movie is supposed to be so scary and like it's so hyped and stuff and you know I'm sure when I watched it I found it um freaky just because that would have also been the first time I really like truly engaged with Freddy since my you know famous childhood (laughs) breakdown Um, which maybe is part of the reason like I didn't really engage with it until it was high school and it's like oh yeah like Halloween you know like we watched a lot of stupid shit in people's basements like somebody put on human centipede and were like appalled and shocked at like what it was and I was like I could have told you like why did you do like it was very funny i was out and i came back and human centipede was on and i was like what are you guys doing why like that and insidious and like Mm. all that stuff like this was definitely a high school basement at a friend's house movie this is a good um party or group movie for sure um there's something about this that's very popcorny in that way Mm-hmm. Um, especially because it is like you know it's all about the clash you know yeah. and like which is like maybe 10 minutes in the movie right yeah it's like well it's more of a collaboration at first like an unknown collaborate like a unilateral collaboration yeah and then it sort of like devolves into the clash yeah. but yeah um So, yeah, before we start talking a little bit about how this clash came to be, let's do uh, a recap of the story so far within the Friday the 13th franchise. If you want a recap of what had been happening in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, you'll have to go find that yourself, Chatterers. Yeah, I can't. (laughs) We are focusing on the sort of Friday the 13th element of... The the recap of that is that Freddy Krueger is a person who exists. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And if you don't know that, well, uh, we can't help you in this particular episode. Um, so, Ms. Mo, do you want to get us started um, on our uh, recap of the story so far here? Sure. All right. So we go back. The original 1980 film details the killing spree of Pamela Voorhees, a spoiler, played by Betsy Palmer who murders the counselors preparing to reopen Camp Crystal Lake where her son, Jason, drowned on June 13, 1957. After all her friends are killed, final girl Alice Harding, I almost said Allison Harding, it was just ready to roll off my tongue. Alice Harding, played by Adrian King, fends off Mrs. Voorhees and decapitates her with a machete. She sure did. Yeah, classic. Part two. <laughs> Released one year later, Jason, played by Steve Dashkowitz, revealed to be alive and fully grown. (laughs) Having been living in the woods around Crystal Lake, finds Alice and kills her to avenge his mother and returns to Crystal Crystal Lake to guard it from all future intruders. Five years later, a new group of campers arrive at the lake to set up a new camp, and Jason slaughters them all, save Ginny Field, played by Amy Steele, who finds a cabin in the woods with the severed head of Mrs. Voorhees set up in a shrine. Ginny fights back and slashes a machete through Jason's Jason's shoulder, leaving him for dead. Because in part three, which came out in 1982, uh, which takes place the next day, Jason, played by Richard Booker, removes the machete from his shoulder and finds his way to Higgins Haven, a vacation cabin where Chris, played by Dana Kimmel, has arrived to spend the weekend with some friends. Jason hides out in the barn, killing all who enter. He takes a hockey mask from one of the victims and slaughters all but Chris, who seemingly kills him with an axe to the head before she is taken away in an ambulance, now hysterical. Mm. 
Where does that lead us? Well, then we go into the final chapter released in 1984, which was the fourth installment. And that begins with Jason, now played by Ted White, being found at the barn and taken to the morgue. Once there, Jason kills the coroner and returns to Crystal Lake. Uh, a group of friends who are renting a house on the lake find themselves terrorized by the mass killer, leaving Jason to attack Trish, played by Kimberly Beck, and Tommy Jarvis, played by Corey Feldman. While distracted by Trish, young Tommy attacks and finally kills Jason. He does indeed die. Then in A New Beginning, released in 1985, the fifth installment, we find an older Tommy Jarvis, played by John Shepard, now committed to a mental halfway house as a result of trauma after the events of the previous film. Paramedic Roy Burns, played by Dick Wyand, uses Jason's persona to carry out a series of murders at the house as revenge for the death of his son, whom one of the patients at the institution killed years prior. So the idea of Jason, but not actually him. <laughs> the sixth part, Jason Lives, released in 1986, begins with Tommy's release from another institution, uh, now played by Tom Matthews. He digs up Jason's grave in order to burn the body. Not sure why. Uh, but inadvertently... Catharsis. Yeah. Uh, but he inadvertently resurrects his nemesis when lightning strikes an iron fence post, rampage Jason's body, and reanimates him. Now undead, Jason, played by C.J. Graham and Dan Bradley, immediately heads back to Crystal Lake to murder the new summer camp workers. Tommy defeats Jason by chaining him to a boulder at the bottom of the lake, though it's revealed that Jason is still alive under the waves. And in the seventh installment, The New Blood, released in 1988, telekinetic and traumatized Tina Shepard, played by Lar Park Lincoln, attempts to resurrect her father, who drowned at Crystal Lake. But instead, she accidentally reawakens Jason, played for the first time by Kane Hodder, who had been forgotten under the water for an indeterminate amount of time. Jason once again embarks upon a rampage, killing a group of rowdy teens celebrating a birthday getaway. After a battle against Tina and her psychic powers, Jason is once again imprisoned at the bottom of Crystal Lake. Where does our story go from here? We head into part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, which came out in 1989. Jason, uh, played by Potter, who's reprising his role, is resurrected and freed from the lake by a faulty underwater electrical cable. I'm like remembering like the visual of him like stuck on the cable and (laughs) how stupid that was. Um, he stalks a group of students on their senior class cruise from Crystal Lake, New Jersey, <laughs> that's new, to Manhattan, killing the ship's crew and the majority of the students. In New York, Jason chases uh, Rennie, played by Jensen Daggett, and Sean, played by Scott Reeves, into the sewers where he eventually meets his end when he melts away amidst a flood of toxic waste. <laughs> Classic. Manhattan sewer stuff. Uh However, in part nine, Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, which comes out in 1993, Jason, once again played by Hodder, has been inexplicably resurrected and is killed in an FBI sting operation at Crystal Lake. His spirit possesses the local coroner, and he embarks on a rampage, occasionally switching hosts. It is revealed that Jason has a sister 
Diana Kimball, played by Erin Gray, and a niece, Jessica Carey Keegan, where have I heard this before? And that he needs them to regain his original body, which he eventually does before being stabbed by Jessica with a mystical dagger and dragged into hell. After a dog unearths Jason's hockey mask, Freddy Krueger's laugh is heard as his glove hand bursts through the dirt and grabs the mask. However... Mm. <laughs> Take us home! <laughs> Jason, once again played by Hotter, is once again inexplicably resurrected and is cryogenically frozen at the beginning of part 10. Freddy Krueger, nowhere to be seen as part of yes. yeah. uh, Jason X is the name of this movie. It comes out in 2001. Uh, government scientist Rowane Fontaine, played by Alexa Doge, is accidentally frozen alongside him, however. Over 400 years later, a team of students studying the now uninhabitable Earth discover Jason's body and take it into space. <laughs> Upon being thawed by the team, Jason proceeds to murder everyone aboard the spacecraft. He is seemingly killed, but is then resurrected via nanotechnology as a cyborg version of himself. Finally, he is ejected into space and incinerated by Earth 2's atmosphere, the mask falling to the bottom of the lake. And that's the last as of right now that we hear of Jason. That is the last. And I guess in the original run of films, that is canonically and chronologically the true end of Jason Voorhees. Yes, because as we know, Jason, Freddy vs. Jason, takes place after the final Friday. Yes, and I saw something that said it takes place like two months after final Friday. Okay. Yeah, I, I was seeing the dates of like when it's supposed to be, and like I wasn't sure exactly yeah. how it lined up, but that's how they get around that little snafu. Yeah. They're like, well, yeah, this is before he's captured and frozen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so that's where we are uh, within the story when it's decided to finally make the crossover happen. And there's a reason the crossover didn't immediately happen before or right after um, Jason goes to hell and that they did Jason X. And I think we'll get into a little bit of that now as we talk about uh, the pre-production um, and the making of this film, which is convoluted at best. <laughs> there, there are documentaries and books about this topic. About what happened, yeah. And so, as always, we're not the end-all, be-all authority. Uh, we do what we can. Um, if we get anything wrong, we'll just apologize, I think, right here. It's right also now. like an ongoing thing. Right. Like this is something that has still not been this is we're sort of doing an abridged version of how shit went down up until the making of Freddy vs. Jason. Since then, there have been even more convoluted developments. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> so that's our sort of little disclaimer. Um, let's get into it the best we can. Mm -hmm. um, All right. Take it away. Okay, so everything behind this film is all basically has to do with the idea of um, who owned the rights to all of these various characters, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but who also who owned the rights to the franchises because right. there were some complex 
people like, the character versus the films right. were different things. Were different things. And I think particular that mostly applies to Jason Voorhees and Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, as who owns the rights to like Friday the 13th as a franchise and who owns the rights to Jason Voorhees as a character. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about this back in our um, Jason Takes Manhattan episode because that's when a lot of this first sort of to bubble up and come to the surface and was the initial separation. That's why the title of um, part nine ends up being Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. And there's actually no Friday the 13th in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, of course, why Jason X and et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, so it's all about intellectual property. And um, when you're doing a crossover like Freddy versus Jason, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had. There's a lot of legalities that are involved because uh, different studios owned these franchises for a number of years and there was a lot of back and forth. But the idea for Freddy vs. Jason actually originates in the 80s. Um, In 1987 Mm -hmm. is actually sort of the first serious attempt uh, to think about what this might look like. And that idea is spearheaded by Frank Mancuso Jr., who we have talked about in past episodes about this series who was unable to convince Paramount, who at this point in time owned the Jason Voorhees character and New Line Cinema, who owned the Freddy Krueger character, to reach an agreement. He can't get them to, um, well, he gets them to come to the table. He just can't get them to leave the table shaking hands. Like, my understanding of it is they both wanted to be the studio that made the movie and wanted the other to license them the other's character. Yeah, I understand that, I think, the same way as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, neither studio was reluctant to sort of give up the idea of being the producing studio. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, uh, this is when Paramount decides to move forward with Jason Takes Manhattan in 1989 instead of um, doing this crossover thing. Uh, then the rights go back to, um, Steve Nassian, Phil Scuderi, and Bob, uh, Barsamian. They were backers, um, of the original film in the series, um, and handled the initial distribution, um, because they owned a number of different theater chains. And so once they get the rights back, they sell them to New Line Cinema. And it seems that that, of course, is like the last hurdle, right? Everything's sort of cleared. Um, And for various reasons, yes and no. But um, (laughs) New Line, uh, they they go ahead with Jason Goes to Hell um, as like a a tester in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we talked a little bit about that in that episode. Um, Because of the ending with the glove, it's sort of a tease that Freddie's going to appear at some point there's um interest but there's not as much interest as there used to be in like the mid to late 80s to make this happen um Wes Craven obviously um you know the original uh director of the first film um he had been involved in these discussions i think on and off Mm -hmm. and he ends up um sort of doing his own thing uh with new nightmare of course, in 1994, 
the year after Jason Goes to Hell. Um, and it's around this time that he also publicly is sort of like, I really don't love the idea of a crossover. Um, and I think that will ultimately just harm both characters and franchises rather than enhancing them. Yeah. Um, we can talk a little bit about if he was right or not later. <laughs> <laughs> the, then original producer and uh, director of the first Friday the 13th, Sean S. Cunningham, um, sort of becomes a big champion of of keeping the crossover idea alive. He feels that the project is still a good idea. He oversees Jason X. He doesn't direct, but he oversees as a producer because um, he wants to keep interest in the Jason character alive so that they can eventually try this thing. Um, but because of the production on Jason X, there's a delay in that. That's released much later than they wanted it to be. We talked about that in that episode. Um, and so then eventually the president at the time of New Line, Michael DeLuca, um, uh, resigns at this point, And he was like, a, I guess, a, a stalwart opponent of that. And um, so once he's gone and the um, last opposition is out of the way, they're sort of poised to go ahead and finally do the crossover, right? Yeah. That's my understanding. Like, yeah. The yeah. stage is finally set to make it happen. Yeah. Like, it was a legal battle, and then once the major legal hurdle was crossed, it became, like, a situation of, is there interest, you know, horror starting to move into a different direction with New Nightmare and Scream and that sort of thing. Um, so then it became about, um, you know, just willingness to do the project. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's where things stood in 2002, as we said, when we'll, when we'll get into it when we do our 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 final uh, Friday the 13th episode, like it gets more complicated and it's still not resolved. Yeah, I feel like there was just so much time spent, like like there was so much hesitancy, as much as there was like excitement around this idea. It feels like they were testing the idea for a really long time. Yes. Like, I'm thinking about, like, after we just, like, did the recap, right, we're talking about part seven with mm -hmm. you know, the psychic. And it was kind of like, oh, Jason versus Carrie. But in a way, it's also a test for, like, Jason versus Freddy, right? Yeah. Because Similar, like, metaphysical, supernatural, like, like Yeah. 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 And the original, like, push for Freddy vs. Jason was like fans, right? Because there had been a fan film that had been created in the 80s about the characters fighting each other that had been put out and like, I guess was pretty popular in several circles and that kind of got the studio talking about the possibility of doing that um, and the possibility of doing other characters in that mix, which we'll get into. Um, but in terms of testing, over the course of development, what we'll call the development of this film, if we if we take 1987 as the starting point to 2001, when it finally starts to go into production, or I guess 2002, um, New Line Cinema reportedly spent six million for script development alone, which is bonkers. Yeah. So here's just a few of the people who officially turned in scripts: uh, Louis Abernathy of House 4. Uh, David J. Show of Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. 
three, two, three. three that's the third one. Yeah. Three. Uh, Brandon Braga, who is a writer on Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, Ronald D. Moore, Battlestar Galactica writer. Uh, Peter Briggs, who penned the original Alien vs. Predator script in the 90s. Um, and I believe was, like, still involved in, like, to some extent when the movie actually did come out. But um, but it was originally written, I think, in, like, 1994. Um, Another big horror crossover. Yeah, which actually comes out not long after this film. That's right. Um, Cyrus Voris and Ethan Reif, they're a, they're a writing duo. They worked on Demon Knight. Another duo, David S. Goyer and James Dale Robinson, who wrote The Crow, City of Angels. Um, another duo, Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger of King of the Hill. <laughs> We're starting to get further afield now. Mark uh, Verheden of The Mask. Um, Mark uh, Protsevich of I Am Legend. Uh, Todd Farmer, who wrote Jason X, was also given an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all turned in, all these men turned in a script at some point during development. Uh, then in 2000... We turned in a script. We also <laughs> turned in a script. Yeah, I think everyone. Too. Well, it's worth noting now that um, officially, as per WGA arbitration panel's records, there were 16 official screenwriters and 10 official versions of the script submitted, but it's believed that there were many more unofficial writer's scripts and treatments that were going around. Crazy. So there's at least 10 versions. But anyway, in 2002, Mark Swift and Damian Shannon pitched a story that New Line was happy with, and they said, okay, give us a script. They turned in a 120-page script that uh, New Line uh, commissioned Goyer, David S. Goyer, to come back and trim down. Um, What was trimmed down is a little interesting, um, and we can get into that in a second. but a couple different titles that were floated for the film included Jason vs. Freddy, which I don't know, like it just doesn't roll. It Freddy doesn't. Yeah. Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah. Um, Freddy for Freddy vs. Jason: The Millennium Massacre. <laughs> and then my personal favorite, Nightmare Thirteen: <laughs> Freddy Meets Jason. <laughs> oh my god. Was another one. Literally just mushing the two. Right yeah, I I would have I would have been down to clown with that one. Uh. Um, a couple of possible <laughs> that's directors. Like, that's like what like a fifth grade boy would call it. Yeah, yeah. thirteen. Yeah, that's my fanfic. Yeah. Um, possible directors who were offered a chance to direct but ultimately passed were Rob Zombie, Wes Craven, Guillermo del Toro, Peter Jackson. I heard a rumor that um. Uh, oh my god, what's his name? It's like, I see his face and his name is leaving me. Saw. Um, James Wan. James Wan, thank you. Yeah. I'm like seeing oh. his Wikipedia picture. James Wan was supposedly offered, um, and then Ronnie Yu, um, who mm. turned it down initially. Right. Um, and then Ronnie Yu was talked into reconsidering once he was promised, like, full creative freedom, essentially, yeah, yeah. the final product. Which I think I think, like, Rob Zombie has talked about the reason he turned it down was because they wouldn't let him do it, like, his way. Like, they wouldn't give him full creative freedom. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting to... I mean, I guess at that time... Because Rob Zombie hadn't made House of a Thousand Corpses yet. No, he was just coming off House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh. Because that was 2001. 
Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that, you know. I would have been curious to see his, his version. version. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, you think about, obviously, a couple years after this, he would do his version of Halloween. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah, I don't know that... I guess I see why they wouldn't give him the reins entirely, because he probably would have... Gone bananas. Gone bananas, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they wanted the material treated, like, a certain way. Never forget that time Rob Zombie yelled at me. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So scary. (laughs) So cool. Um... (laughs) So during the writing and the drafting and the script doctoring, a couple different twists were considered to try and tie Jason and Freddy together in a way that made sense, which included Freddy being revealed to be Jason's father. Yeah. A reveal that Freddy once worked at Camp Crystal Lake and was responsible for Jason's death, which I don't necessarily hate. That's kind of in keeping with Freddy's character a little bit. Um, the, him being responsible for Jason's death kind of undercuts the entire first movie, though, but... Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, I've I've seen lines. I don't know if it's like the same ones that like they were like Freddie was going to they were going to make him like a counselor there and he would have like molested Jason. Mm -hmm. And and, like Jason like ran to the lake. Yeah. Afterwards kind of thing and then drowned. Yeah. And then another one that was floated was a reveal that Jason was a kid from Elm Street who got away, which I also don't hate because I feel like that does the least amount of damage to the existing mythology. Yeah. But none of those ultimately made it into the film. Uh, A couple different sequences that were cut, um, including the film, specifically in the opening sequences, um, it was going to open in medieval times. I don't, I'm curious what that script is. Like an army of darkness situation? I guess. Well, there was at one point an idea to get Ash in there as well. Yes. That has come to fruition in comic book form. But um, So I don't know if it was that, but there was that version. Another one was going to open with Jason getting arrested at Camp Crystal Lake, while another was going to have it be sort of like on the, like, Eve or New Year's Eve of, like, the millennium. One that sounded actually kind of cool was... They're really big on this millennium idea. I know. Well, I feel like back in that time, we all were, like, pretty big on it. Yeah, this is true. Everyone was. I have this memory of being over at somebody's house for, you know, 2000, like, that New Year's Eve, and making, like, little, you know, because you're a kid, you're making arts and crafts and shit for New Year's Eve to stay up, and, like, I wrote a sign to be like, yeah, it's the year 2000, and I was so proud of it, and I go to show my parents, and they're like, you wrote 200. (laughs) I like did it perfectly. Well, I was like, it all fits. It's great. And they're like, you're missing a zero. <laughs> you're just like. <laughs> so that's how I remember the end, my last moments of 1999. Your last moments of the 20th century. <laughs> but one one bit that didn't make it in that I think actually sounds kind of cool is a version that um, involved a cult that worshipped Freddy called Fredheads. Uh, and uh, they would bring Freddy back to life using a sort of sacrificial ceremony and i'm guessing jason and his uh you know killing spree were a part of that Uh um i'm assuming this is part of the medieval timeline but there was a couple concept and story pieces that didn't make it in such as freddie peeing in the holy grail (laughs) 
a boxing scene, a hockey scene, Freddy needing to collect 13 dream demons to come back to life, Freddy getting beamed by a laser into the sun, Crystal Lake having a wall constructed around it to keep people out, (laughs) Crystal Lake being destroyed at the end of the film, and Alice, Tommy, and Jacob appearing as main characters. I wouldn't have hated Alice, Tommy, and... Now, there is um, a belief that producer Robert Shea was more interested in the Freddy side of stuff than the Jason side, and he was the one kind of calling for these asymmetrical cuts to the Jason elements because they did cast um, pretty much all these characters initially and then decided to cut them out of the film. So Yeah, I've seen a lot of that too, that girl Bob Shea was not quite as interested in the the nightmare side of things. Yeah. But anyway, we finally have a film. We finally have a film. Do we have a cast? We we have a cast. Um and it's it all started as you might imagine um with sort of the face of this movie and um the nightmare franchise. Robert Anglin. Um he signs on pretty early um i think it was like in the late 90s oh in in 1999 Mm -hmm. um he's into it he's like yeah let's do it uh the unknown at the time monica kina was uh cast to be our leading lady there's a fairly extensive search at the time a lot of big late 90s early 2000 names are considered christina ricci Brittany murphy crystal lowe all get offered the part and either turn it down or can't accept it for this, that, and the other. Uh, a lot of Canadian actors fill out the supporting cast. Uh, the probably biggest notable exception to that, of course, is uh, Kelly Rowland, who is American, <laughs> um, uh, who's cast in the role of Kia. Um, but then uh, <laughs> Brendan Fletcher, the great Catherine Isabel, um, Tom Butler, Jesse Hutch, they all at one time or another uh, were Smallville folks, mm-hmm. um, which um, like a lot of WBCW shows shot in Vancouver, uses a lot of Canadian cast and crew. Yeah, I believe a lot of them, if not all of them, also appeared in Supernatural at some point. Yeah. I know at least, yeah, probably all of them, actually. Yeah. Uh, that's, like, another thing where, like, I, I think we were on Supernatural. You know, it was on so long. And... Yeah, <laughs> I was also on Supernatural. <laughs> After I turned into my... It was right, yeah, it was just right after we turned in our, our spec script for Freddy vs. Jason, uh, Millennium Massacre. Uh, <laughs> Brad Renfro was initially cast as Will Rollins, but was replaced a week before filming started by Jason Ritter. Um, This uh, very sadly and most likely was due to Renfro's um, battle and struggle with substance abuse. Uh, Ian Somerhalder briefly considered uh, as the replacement, but uh, Ronnie Yu was like, nah, you're a bit too good looking. The thing is, is like he's like unearthly good looking. Like he's sort of like, and not to say that he's so good looking that it's unearthly. He just doesn't look like a person. Yeah, it's just so, It's like, how am I supposed to think you're a random kid in the right. street? Um, and Jason Ritter is kind of like derpy looking. 
um, movie. So I think that works a bit better. Now, the great Betsy Palmer, our original Mrs. Voorhees, was offered the chance to come back and reprise that role. Um, But I guess there were some payment disputes. I've seen some stuff that she um, sort of like was like, for why? Just a couple lines, you know, da, 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 da. And so ultimately that role was recast uh, with Paula Shaw. Now, interestingly, Kane Hodder, who had been playing Jason for, what, the last four films of the franchise Mm -hmm. uh, up to this point, um, was going to come back for a fifth time as Jason. But for reasons kind of unknown, New Line decides they want to go with a different direction and um, that they're going to cast a different actor. Uh, Sean Cunningham pushes back against this, um, and, you know, I think, like, Hodder was kind of fairly into the process at this point, but you decides, um, to move on and, um, basically create and mold a new Jason that would be, I know they wanted him to be bigger, Mm -hmm. they wanted him to be taller, slower, um, C.J. Graham, who portrayed Jason in Jason Lives, was offered a chance to audition, but he actually declines uh, out of loyalty to his fellow Jason Hodder. He sort of like stands with him. Eventually, stuntman Ken Kersinger, um, who had been a double for Hodder in the past on Jason Takes Manhattan, uh, he comes in to interview for the stunt coordinator position on the film. Uh, his size gets uh used attention um and he is ultimately cast during reshoots douglas tate uh comes in to portray jason kersinger talks about jason and his approach being um to portray him as a psycho savant um that is sort of the way he is because he's just been neglected by society which is an interesting angle to think about um it is it is a little strange i think when you look back in retrospect a lot of people just assume that it's still hotter like like after mm-hmm. he was cast, it was always him like up until the remake um but it's not he it's it's a little bit sad like i've seen clips of him from the um crystal lake memories documentary mm-hmm. talking about um like he was a big champion of the crossover as well um and he really advocated it for a number of years like almost a decade and um you can tell in his interviews that he was really disappointed not to be cast for the crossover, but he's very like um, classy about it still. He's just like, yeah, they went another direction. I, I was bummed and stuff or, you know, so yeah, not bad for him. He's supposed to be like, like everyone that's like met him and stuff talks about how like he's a super nice guy. Yeah. I mean, and he, I saw someone actually, it was funny cause they talked about how um, they felt that, um, What's what's James Bond's name? Which James Bond? The the Casino Royale. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. They compared <laughs> Daniel Craig and Kane Hodder in terms of like here's two guys playing this character at like a tumultuous time during the franchise, like a turning point in the franchise. Like it was actually a really interesting like Twitter thread that was like like. It was a weird comparison, but it, like, made a ton of sense. Huh. It was, like, two guys, like, who came in and, like, 
took on like a beloved franchise character at a time when the franchise was sort of turning into new directions, you know, like in upheaval of directors and like that sort of thing. Like it was just interesting. Huh. That yeah. is interesting. Um Well, uh, yeah, what what were some of their, like, um, little casting things that sort of, like, came about? Uh, Evangeline Lilly has an uncredited cameo as a high school student. I've never picked her out. Yeah. Before. So now it's I'm funny gonna... because a fan picked her out and was like, is that Evangeline Lilly? And asked her at a convention, and she sort of, like, um, like kind of reluctantly was like, yeah, I was in that movie. Um, but at around 26 minutes, she is the high school student in a jacket with green sleeves. So look for her. Um, wrestler Ray Mysterio was England's stunt double for the boiler room sequence, which is fun for you wrestling heads out there. Um, New Line Cinema chief and producer of every preceding Nightmare film, Bob Shea, played the school principal under the pseudonym L.E. Moko. Right, right, sure. And then, as we mentioned, Tommy Jarvis was set to appear with Jason Bateman playing him uh, before the script was trimmed and his part was cut. Catherine Isabel was originally cast as a character named Jenny, who, from what I can tell, is a character from a Friday the 13th fan film and popular Friday the 13th fan fiction, unless it's a new character. Mm. Um, who was going to be in it, but was ultimately cut. But you and the producers felt Isabel had the makings of a potential scream queen, so they recast her as Gib and just got rid of the woman who was originally cast as Gib. Like, eh, there was a woman already cast as Gib, and they made them switch roles, I think, okay. with anticipation that they were going to cut the Jenny character and then cut the Jenny character. Oh, that's rough job. Yeah. So, um. And, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, they, like, I mean, they were right. I mean, about Catherine Isabel going, yeah. you know, becoming a scream queen. Um, still, that's that is it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but that was how it was portrayed in in what I was finding was that they made them switch and then quietly cut the character. Wow. Um, but uh, the character of Mark Davis was originally written as Latino, but the actor who was cast dropped out at the last minute. Brendan Fletcher, who at the time had a smaller role, uh, was suggested for the part, and it was rewritten. Mm-hmm. And we got a cast. We got the cast. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about their portrayals and their characters in just a moment. But, uh, yeah, so we'll just, you know, chat a bit about they assemble the cast. They finally nail down, you know distill these 8 billion different scripts and stories into what they decide they're going to make. And they start filming on September 9th. Hey. Shared birthday of your fabulous hosts here at Splatter Chatter. Uh, 2002 in Vancouver. Uh, production pretty quick. Only 53 days. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it wrapped on December 20th. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, so done just in time before Christmas. Yeah. And, um, and, and it was, and it was, and that was a wrap. Uh, it was the first film to feature Freddy Krueger, not to film in the United States. 
Um, and so because of that, there was apparently quite an extensive search to find a house uh, that would resemble the original 1428 Elm Street um, home, the Thompson home from Which the original like, film. I didn't like do a side by side. Like that looks right to me. It looks memory. It's close enough. Yeah. But it, if you do do a side by side, you're like, really? I, it's funny because my biggest memory of that house is the final scene of the movie where she's in her sunny dream. So like seeing it at night all the time, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. I'm also wondering if they primarily portrayed it at night to hide that it's not exactly that it's not, the same yeah. house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bunsen Lake. Uh, which is also in British Columbia, that was used for Camp Crystal Lake. Um, it's been used for a number of different uh, filming locations, including Lake Placid. Uh, it's in the X-Files and Highlander. It's also in Smallville and Supernatural, um, as well as the It miniseries from 1990. So this lake, you know, probably has an IMDb page now that I'm thinking it. About it does. Does it? <laughs> there you go. There you go. The film ultimately cost $25 million, which makes it the um, most expensively produced Friday the 13th film. And I believe the most expensive Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I wasn't, I didn't see, I my, my assumption is that's true. Um, I believe what I saw was that it was the most expensive for both franchises and it made the most money for both franchises. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, of course, while the film does utilize several flashback shots to previous Nightmare on Elm Street films, um, as you would imagine, given how we started this episode, there was some tangle over the legal rights to do the same with flashbacks from Friday the 13th, because all of those um, you know, previously recorded images were owned by Paramount, and they're, they weren't going to give them out to New Line. Um, and then Ronnie Yu utilized uh, a film technique that he had picked up in Hong Kong of different camera speeds during the action sequences um, so that they would convey what he calls action impact. Um, Did you notice any? I don't think I know enough about this technique to pick yeah. it out. Did you like see no, it? No, I mean, I thought about it after the fact and I'd have to go, like, go back and watch, but um, I mean, Sure. Yeah. yeah. I will say, um, like, I, I noticed, like, a shift in, like, s general, like, style of the filmmaking when the fight scene began. Mm -hmm. But that's typical of fight scenes in general. Yeah. But not enough to be like, oh, that's, he's doing X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, the score. Our score was composed by Graham Revel. Um, who has done had, a ton, he's done a lot of genre stuff, um, pretty extensive career there. Uh, and of course, the score does uh feature both of the iconic theme songs, mm -hmm. um, not extensively. Um, they both do appear. Um, I like. I know in the opening credits for sure they're done together. Yeah, they sort of bleed into each other. Yeah, and I always, I always thought that was cool. It's kind of like, oh yeah. 
Um, and then the practical effects makeup was handled by WCT Productions. Digital effects were handled by Cinesite, Pixel Magic, and Digital Dimension. There are some not great digital effects in this <laughs> film. Um, I don't even want to say that they didn't age well because I feel like back then people were like, that looks shitty. Well, here's my thing with when people say stuff like that doesn't age well and watching movies from that time that have shitty effects is like Lord of the Rings was working with the same effects. Yeah. Age fine. Still holds up. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. People are like, oh, it just didn't age well. I'm like, no, it looked bad then. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till you watch Argento's Dracula. Oh my gosh, I've been putting that off. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, and then some other uh, companies I think came in and did t- like Asylum was involved a little bit. They're a famous effects company, like Digiscope, Yannick Technology, the Enter, um, Digital Dimension Entertainment Group. Over 300 gallons of fake blood, though. So, I mean, there are still practical effects. Um, yeah. A decent amount of practical effects, actually. Yeah. Which is which is good. Um, so, yeah. That's sort of the making of the film. Do we... What do we What do we think is the vibe here, Ms. Bell? Is it time to do a roll call? Is it time to do a plot rundown? What do we think is... We can do... I think we can do a plot rundown and... Work through a little bit of the roll call as we go, I think. Yeah, I like that idea. Um, do you want me to get started? Do you want to get us? Whatever, whatever works for you. You've been talking a lot. I'll, 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 I'll jump in. <laughs> Tell us, what's the scene? Uh, mainly what's... because the, the opening sequence with Freddy's little monologue while he's doing his nonsense is like... Ridiculous, Gonzo. But it opens with Freddy, who's trapped in a sort of hellish dimension, um, sort of recounting his woes, how he was once, you know, this feared dude, you know, he was killing kids left and right, he was having a ball, you know, and he's basically recapping the sort of very high level uh, Nightmare on Elm Street films, but he's unable to get into kids' dreams. Um, and this is because the adults in Springwood have gone to insane lengths uh, <laughs> to prevent this from happening. Um, they ensure that all their children, as you, as you know from you know the original films, like a, a big part of it is if you're not afraid of Freddy, if you you know don't believe in him, etc. Like he sort of loses his power. Um, so the kids have been made to forget him, forget that he ever existed. Um, he's been like sort of wiped from public records and like local histories and that sort of thing. And any kid, this is like the the hilarious part for me, but any kid who uh, has a dream of Freddy uh, or seems to be having an inkling of, um, you know, knowing who Freddy is, gets sent to this institution um, yep. called Western Hills. Um, and is given a dream suppressant drug called Hypnosil, which appeared previously, I believe, in um, Nightmare Films, is a ridiculous name title for a fake drug. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, um, so a few of our characters who we meet, um, who we're going to meet, are there when they start, and a few of our characters are in Springwood. Um, 
But Freddie decides that the best way he's going to be able to to get you know back on the horse is to um, utilize Jason Voorhees, who he he resurrects um, and pretends to be uh, Jason's mother, Pamela, to sort of manipulate him into going off of going on, you know, a killing spree again, to sort of create fear that will allow him to sort of build up energy and return. Um, so that's his plan. <laughs> it's not a bad plan. No. It's funny that he really, like, he just, they, he monologues right away. You know, it's not even at the end. It's like, that's how we open. Um, so that's what's going on in the background as we meet Laurie Campbell, who is played by Monica Kina, as we know. Yeah. Um, who lives with her widowed father and is, like, hanging out with her friends. Kia, who is played by... Oh my god, we just said it. Oh, Kelly Rowland, of course. Kelly Rowland. <laughs> and I was That's like, this <laughs> And Gib, as we know, is played by Catherine Isabel. Um, and they're hanging out. Um, first time we meet them. Um, what do you think, by the way, of Monica Kina as a considering who she was up against for this role? Yeah. Um I like I like her in this role. Um, not like the whole time, I think. I think sometimes there's, she slips a bit into overacting. Yeah. Um, but I also think some of that is the material and the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I do though, like, I find her endearing. And I think because I've also seen an interview with her in, um, either Crystal Lake Memories or the, what's the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary? Never never sleep sleep again. Um, Clips from one of those where she's talking about, she was totally traumatized by the Mm -hmm. original film. Have you seen that? Yeah, to the point where the school like intervened with her parents, like with a wellness check, because they were worried that stuff was like going on at home. And like, I get it, Monica. Yeah, and I I I thought of you. I was like, Mel and Monica being of two. <laughs> um, yeah, and, like, her mom, I guess, had to, like, she, like, found a picture of Robert Englund and would, like, hold it up next to a picture of Freddie to, like, help Monica understand that, like, he was just an actor, like, it, it, Freddie's not real um, kind of thing. And I definitely had to do something similar like, not that my mom did that, but for me personally, like, when it came time to, like, be able to use the internet and that sort of thing, like, to know, like, yeah, like, or, like, just even thinking about it, like, a guy played Freddy Krueger. It's a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I could just, I'm just imagining, like, a younger version of you just being like, okay, what's the deal here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looking away. <laughs> I need to know. Um, um, yes. Yeah, so- Kelly Rowland, though. Um, Kelly Rowland, I, <laughs> okay, um, she feels to me made for this era of horror films. Yeah. I, I was like, I don't know. I like, is it rude to call it stunt casting? Yeah. But in something like this, where you're, you're casting somebody of that, um, name clout. Right. You know? Yeah, I think. Yeah, and I, 
she does, I think, what she can with the Kia character, who is not particularly yeah. likable. Yeah, she's kind of mean. She's kind of mean. She's kind of mean to um, where's Monica Keenan? Lori. Yeah. Um, she's kind of mean to. Oh no, she's definitely mean to um, Linderman. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. She's what, just kind of mean to everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe it's because like you know, I think you're like, oh, Monica Keenan, and she's like. She's like, I worked through my trauma because I starred in this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, that's really precious. And then I'm like, Kelly Rowland, what was your <laughs> major connection to this? And that's not entirely fair to Kelly Rowland, but I don't know. Yeah. What are, what are your, what's your... I have a similar thing. I felt that uh, Kia, the character, probably wasn't doing her a ton of favors because she did come off as mean throughout most of the movie. I do think Kelly Rowland, like, definitely, like... Um, has screen presence and like mm-hmm. gave energy to the part, and I think that's good because she definitely felt like a very um, charismatic character, even if she was kind of mean to everybody. Um, you know, I think Catherine Isabel is the one I like the most out of that trio. Yes, um, I think she does the best job with kind of an interesting, sort of quieter character. Um, so those are my thoughts. I agree. Um, I love Catherine Isabel. I think I've been vocal about that on the podcast before. Um, I wish Gib was around longer. That's yeah. that's what I all I have to say about that. Yeah. So. Um, but anyway, they're having a sleepover, and Gib's I- shitty boyfriend Trey. Oh my god, he's so terrible. Shows up in an oversized leather jacket um, with his friend Blake. With his friend Blake. Who's like drinking from a, a flask and like already clearly like out of yeah. it. Um, Everyone's like, what? Trey and Gib go upstairs to have sex. They do have sex. Um, afterwards, she goes to like shower and he just he's like hangs out in the bed they kind of have a like fight like immediately afterwards yeah because she wants to cuddle yeah and he's like don't i don't cuddle and she's like all right i guess i'll shower and he's like okay um yeah (laughs) bye at which point jason enters and has probably the coolest kill of the movie i think so too um where he murders trey in the bed and then it's one of those beds that sort of fold. Like, I don't know if it's like a, a couch bed or what it was, but it somehow yeah. sandwiches him and he sort I, of like cracks in half. Yeah. I was like, oh, was it that kind of bed? Or is that just like Jason being freakishly strong? Yeah. Couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, but the police suspect it was Freddie because um, it happened in a bed. It's very similar to something Freddie would do. Um, so <laughs> they... Yeah, and they, and exactly, so they cover it up, um, and Blake, who's, like, kind of traumatized from his buddy getting cracked in half, wow. uh, in bed is, you know, um, trying to talk to his dad about it, he's having feelings, and then, um, he falls asleep and is dreaming, um, and, uh, awakens to find that Jason has killed his father, who he, in his dream, was talking to. Um, his head falls off, and uh, Blake is then killed. So these are sort of, like, 
covered up by the police who are like, oh shit, Freddy's back. Um, and then we made a couple other people who, who what other main characters do we meet? Yeah, yeah. And then, but and if I could just say real quick, I also mm-hmm. think the Blake kill is cool because he cuts through the dad's head into mm-hmm. Blake with his machete, yeah. which is kind of sick. Yeah. But yeah, and so um, the next, I think it's the next day, mm-hmm. like word arrives that Blake has also been killed, but the police are calling it a murder-suicide. <laughs> like, what? Um, and, um, oh no, it's, we go to the asylum, right? Yeah. With the Blake kill? Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, the uh, so at at Weston Hills, um, the nightmare world, uh, Will Rollins, um, played by uh, Jason Ritter, mm-hmm. and his um, roommate and friend, um, Mark Davis, played by Brendan Fletcher, um, see news of the killings in Springwood as they're like in line to get their, um, their I guess, like their nightly medication, which is implied as hypnosil, um, to make sure that they don't dream. Um, and that like immediately sort of triggers Will that, um, something is really wrong and he needs to, uh, get out and get back to town so he can find Lori because Lori is his ex-girlfriend or they like connected when they were like 14 I, which was I guess yeah, it was like a long time ago because it's mentioned during like the sleepover thing when yeah. the guys come over they're like oh like it's, you know look at this cute guy Blake and she's like no like I'm kind of still hung up on Will and they're like that was when you were 14 yeah like get over it he like ghosted you he moved and he never wrote you a letter yeah it's 2003 and you would write letters yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> and but this is sort of like the reveal to us that no, Will didn't ghost. He's institutionalized or whatever. Um, And uh, he has had some sort of previous contact or interaction with Freddie. Like he suspects that this is Freddie and that Lori is in danger. Um, Right? Or does he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because anyone who's in the asylum was a kid who like, yeah, showed some sort of memory of Freddy. So they sort of like sequestered them and locked them up to prevent right. an outbreak essentially of, of Freddy stuff. Right. And so they, um, Will and Mark organize a breakout from mm-hmm. Weston Hills so they can get back to Springwood. Meanwhile, that night, um, as all high schoolers do when their classmates have died violently, um, uh, the kids go to a rave. Uh, in a cornfield. A rave in a cornfield. <laughs> and um, there's, you know, music and glow sticks and um, drinking and drugs. And they're all trying to, I don't know, move on or whatever. Um, and while at the rave, we meet, um, we meet... Does Linderman have a first name? Charlie. Yeah. Charlie Linderman, played by Christopher George Marquette. And, um... Freeberg. Bill Freeberg. Owner. Yeah, Bill Freeberg, played by Kyle Levine. Um, Linderman is 
this nerdy character who has shown that he sort of has like a little crush on Lori and might be interested in her. And Freeberg is um, your typical like movie stoner, which is um, all stereotype and, you know, no yeah. real substance. And they're all sort of like mingling and interacting at this party. Linderman tells Kia off for being a bitch. And then like less than 60 seconds later, she's like, let's dance. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lori is sort of like moping around. And then Gib has passed out like elsewhere in the cornfield um, because she's upset about the violent death of her boyfriend. Um, and there's this really sort of dark moment where another raver, another student, I guess, um, begins to like sexually assault Gib while she's unconscious. Um, and it doesn't go f too, too far um, because Jason shows up and <laughs> murders the shit out of him. Um, and we don't feel too bad about that. No. And uh, Jason so then starts going on a rampage. He's going around the rave and killing um, a bunch of other people. Uh, meanwhile, Gib, still unconscious, is having a dream in which she is attacked by Freddy in the classic uh, boiler room mm -hmm. uh, at peace. And that's a pretty good sequence and a pretty mm -hmm. good sort of chase. Um, but ultimately, right as Freddy is sort of about to um, finish the deed and kill Gib, she wakes up because Jason kills her in real life. And so Freddie is denied this kill and denied sort of like whatever possession of her soul, which would give him, you know, more power. Um, and this is sort of like the moment when Freddie is like, I may not have complete control over Jason. He's taking all of these kills away from me. I just wanted the fear, you know, him to do the fear. And then I would do the actual killing. And so now the plan is going a bit awry. But our main core uh, flee the rave, um, mostly unharmed. They do see that Gib has been killed. They do see Jason, um, but they get away for the most part. And uh, they they all just sort of like go home, right? Yeah, they just like yeah, they um... yeah, that was fucked up. Good night. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, they run into Will. They run into Will. Oh, yeah, because he takes them in the van. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we learn a little bit of backstory. Part of the reason Will was institutionalized is because he swore that he saw Lori's father murder her mother. Uh -huh. um, so he, for that, was institutionalized. Right. To that. Um, but Will and Lori head to uh, Mark's house um, where... Mark, I believe, is then killed by Freddy. Yeah, because Mark is already there. Yeah. Yeah. Lori, uh, Lori, like, confronts her, like, yeah, because she runs away from her father with Will. Yeah, Once yeah, because there's a confrontation with her dad. Like, he's like, I saw you, you know, he's like, get away from my daughter. And he's like, I saw you murder her. Because yeah. he was, there's this whole sequence where he climbs up the trellis and he yeah. looks at the window and he sees it happening, so. Yeah, it's all very Billy Loomis. Yeah. 
But anyway, Mark is killed. Um, <clears throat> in a dream sequence that mm-hmm. I think is the most Nightmare on Elm Street-ish. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, features his brother. We see his brother, the character, I think is Bobby, played by Zacharias Ward. Um, Scott Farkas himself from A Christmas Story. <laughs> up. Um, the police uh, think Jason is just a Freddy copycat killer and are kind of still treating it that way and are really trying to prevent like this causing an actual sort of Freddy breakout. Like it's interesting that Freddy um, is treated like a a pandemic or an endemic disease or something like that. Like they talk about it as like spreading, Freddy's spreading. Um, yeah, in the movie. But um, they sort of put together uh, the the core who's still around, Laurie and company, deduce that Freddy's using Jason to, um, you know, whip up some fear. Um, and that's what's causing this. And they decide, okay, like, we'll get some hypnosil and that'll, that makes Freddy go away, right? Like, that's what they give the asylum people. Yeah. However, Freddy, anticipating this, possesses uh, the stoner guy, um, Freeberg, um, to make sure that he disposes of all the hypnocell. And there's kind of a cool sequence in the asylum. I think it's the asylum where you see all the, like, people who are, like, almost in, like, cryo sleep, like, weird, like, yeah. Matrix-style sleep. Um, They've, like, overdosed on hypnocell. Yeah. So, but um, anyway... The hypnosil is all, it's like no Alaska during the penicillin crisis. <laughs> like, all of it's gone. Um, Jason arrives after this happens and um, does some more killing. We lose the sheriff. Classic, classic move. Um, Freddy. Oh, yeah, they're joined by this, like, deputy sheriff person. Yeah, um, Who's, like, new. And he's like, no, yeah. something weird's going Dude, on. He's played by Lachlan Monroe, who's got um, frosted tips. Oh, the tips. Something to know about him. Um, That's probably the like, most important part of his character. Uh, Freddy possesses Freeberg, uh, you know, or continues to possess him, uh, and basically gets him to tranquilize Jason to knock him out for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then Freeberg is killed in the process but jason kind of gets a little bit subdued for a bit so with the the hypnocell plan kind of down the drain figuratively literally they decide that um they they come to realize because they have a piece of i guess his sweater or something that they can pull freddie into the ear his ear yeah yeah a piece of him, basically. They realize that they can pull him into the real world, and they think if they do that, they can get Jason to kill him, since Jason seems to kill anything that moves. Right. Um, so, uh, the decision is that Lori will be the one to go under and attract Freddy, and the others will lug Jason's big-ass body back to Camp Crystal Lake, um, which they think might like set him off or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, they're like, oh, it'll give Jason home field advantage. Yeah, which, sure. Yeah. Um, Also, like, Crystal Lake is in New Jersey. Springwood is in Ohio. Yeah. They they drive there in one night. People brought that up. They were like, this doesn't make sense in keeping with Jason Diggs Manhattan. 
<laughs> One of these is wrong. Um, because Jason is asleep, however, Freddy is able to fight him in the dream world. Right. Um, where he has the advantage. Yeah. Uh, he has the home field advantage. Where he has home field advantage. And so he invades Jason's dream and manipulates it and gives himself the advantage and is using all of his various powers. He uncovers that, you know, the undead Jason, um, seemingly this like fearless killing machine, is in fact afraid of. It's conveyed that Jason is afraid of water. And that's yeah. what, right? It's that Jason is afraid of drowning. Yeah. Um, but but it, it also ties with Lori has that like really terrible line where she's like, Freddy died by fire, Jason water. How can we use that? <laughs> like, you must stop talking. Um, and he's like, oh, okay. So now I can um, dream drown and then really drown Jason. And so he kind of does. And there's this moment where almost like Jason takes Manhattan where like big undead zombie Jason, like dream dissolves into the child Jason. Yeah. In the lake, uh, and is sort of like whimpering and crying. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, and then he's sort of drowning in real life, and they make Kia give him mouth to mouth so he won't drown. Yeah. <laughs> so strange and bizarre. Um, and they're like, okay, we're running out of time. We're we're basically at Crystal Lake. Um, it's like, so let's just do the plan. So they put Lori under with tranquilizer. She saves Jason from drowning in the dream world and engages with Freddy to do what she needs to do, you know, to have hold of him. She's awake, welcomed by her friends and pull him into the real, real world. But um, the van crashes. Yes. I think because everyone's just freaking out, right? Well, I don't remember why it crashes. I think it's because Jason was starting to wake up, maybe. Okay. So to wake up on his own because they're out of tranquilizer so the van crashes jason's body goes flying <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely launched um and you know eventually uh lori um is able to sort of like hang on long enough that um the plan is successful and she wakes up and brings Freddy into the real world. Um, and then the final showdown, the whole point of this movie essentially begins. Yes. Um, Jason and Freddy duke it out across Camp Crystal Lake, which is um, in like the process of being like bulldozed and developed over. So there's all sorts of like construction set pieces that are happening. Um, there's this weird sequence where like Jason's like he's like on a rope or in a in in a he sort of like has him dangling. Yeah. From and like a crane chain a crane or, something. or something. And Freddie's doing classic sort of Freddie like weird dark comedy during the fight. Um you know, during this time also like both of them are still like also going after like 
the group too. Like it's not necessarily, it's kind of a free for all. It's during this time that uh, Kia is killed by Jason, I believe while she's um, like distracting Freddie, you know, different things happen. Um, Jason gets Freddie's glove off. Um, Freddie gets Jason's machete. (laughs) Yeah. It's very wild. During all this, Lori and Will decide they're going to, like, just blow the place up. Because, you know, fire, water, I guess this is how they're they're combining these things. Um, they get a bunch of propane tanks, which are around. Um, they explode. Um, it throws Freddie and Jason into the lake, um, seemingly. Uh, seems like everything's good. Um, but Freddie can swim, I guess. Um Water doesn't bother him. (laughs) Water does not bother him. He heads over with Jason's machete, but he's impaled by Jason at the last second with his own claw arm. And um, before he can get to them, which allows Lori, she's got a moment where she can just swing and behead Freddy with the machete. Mm -hmm. Jason falls off the dock and into the water with the head, they both sink into the lake and don't reemerge. Um, also, the machete and everything else, like it all sort of like artfully goes down into the water. Yeah. And Lori and Will peace out. Um, friends are dead. It's fine. They're dead. Um, yeah. But they're happy. You know, Lori's dick dad is dead. You know, they can. Does he die? Does he die? Maybe I imagine that he dies. I think we just abandoned him entirely. Yeah, he kind of disappears, but I guess, you know, because when they get back, they're going to have, it's not going to be all sunshine. Yeah, they're going to be like, where is Kia and Linderman and the deputy and Freeberg? <laughs> yeah. But, um, so that's supposedly happily ever after. At the We get sort of an epilogue where Jason walks out of the water and he's got Freddy's uh, dismembered head and he's got his machete and as he walks towards the camera, the the head of Freddy winks at the camera, and you hear his laugh in the background, leaving sort of the ultimate ending of their their struggle ambiguous. Yeah. Which I think, you know, you think about the fact that this ended up being thus far and most likely uh, the last time Robert Anglin played Freddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that the wink is his final moment. Yeah. Um, I don't know that, like, overall this film was a great swan song for Robert Englund as Freddy, but I like the wink being the last thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that that's Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah. Um, it was quite a big deal. It was. Quite a big deal. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about when it was released, and um, you know the perception of it all, right? Sure. Um, so Freddy vs. Jason opens August fifteenth, two thousand and three. It rakes in thirty six point four million over opening weekend. Comes in number one at the box office over fellow um, new releases, Open Range and Uptown Girls. Yeah. And uh, also beating out holdovers from the week before, SWAT and Freaky Friday. Um, 
and then I believe it was also, it stays at number one in its second weekend, and then it drops in its third weekend of release. But ultimately, it will make $116.6 million against its $30 million budget, um, the most expensive divided franchise, uh, bringing in a profit of $86.6 million. Again, I believe the most financially successful of both franchises. Positive reviews at the time. Um, Praise the film for its humor, its blood, its scares, its dialogue, which I question a little bit, um, and say it's a guilty pleasure um, that was successful in renewing interest in both of these two fading but iconic horror franchises. The negative reviews pan the film as being unoriginal, despite its crossover premise, and um, saying that there were too many drop threads within the story, and they didn't, it didn't ultimately connect in the end. Um, I don't like, I, obviously, I think there are some negative things about this movie. Those particular negative things, I like, don't necessarily mm-hmm. bother me. I'm like, I don't really care about drop threads, because the whole point is to see them fight. Yeah. Um, uh, as of now, Freddy vs. Jason has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 41%, a Metacritic score of 37%, an IMDb rating of 5.7%, and a Letterboxd rating of 2.7 out of 5. Which I think is pretty right. I think my personal Letterbox rating is a 2.5. I think mine, I think I did a like one and one point five. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but hey, it was, it was financially successful. It was a pretty decent juggernaut. There was huge hype and huge marketing for this film. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about um, all the stuff that went into yeah. generating that hype? So the marketing budget of this surpassed the marketing budget of all the previous, I think it's previous Jason and Freddy films combined. Um, It included um, marketing in Las Vegas where they did like a weigh-in, like WWE style or or you, what is it called? Uh, Ultimate Fighting Champion. Um, Another one was Ken uh, Kierzinger appearing in full Jason costume and makeup for his first promotional interview, partially because they thought it would help acclimate audiences to getting used to him as Jason. Mm, sure. Um, and then there was this funky thing with the posters where they had Freddie's glove on the wrong hand and Robert Englund actually pointed it out. But by the time he pointed it out, they had already like gone to print and stuff. So it's kind of, if you, if you yeah. look, it's, it's on the wrong hand. Cause they, cause it was like, they wanted him on the left side right? Because Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. But, like, to do that, you had to switch the glove. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the poster of the two, you know, that's that's the that's the cost of poster. They, there wasn't too much variation on the promo materials. Um, and it's sort of iconic now, but I find it kind of lame. <laughs> um, I almost wish they had done, like, an old-school style poster for it. Uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but before we get into the full analysis and legacy, I've got a couple fun production notes worth yeah, running through. Um, as you know, a couple other characters were talked about being thrown into this. One was Pinhead, um, who they were going to throw in at the end of the movie, but New Line was not willing to go through another character licensing battle and scrap the idea. Yeah, um, he was going to, like, stop the fight, right? Yeah. Um, Monica Kina has gone on now since this movie in her career kind of detouncing the film um, talking about how she accepted the role for money and to boost her profile um, Catherine Isabel has talked about her time on the film being uncomfortable mainly due to you trying to get her to do a nude scene when she specifically said she wasn't going to um, and it yeah. resulted in like the biggest blow up on set and um she ultimately, they used a body double because um, she's like, I'm not getting naked. Um, alternatively, though, Kelly Rowland has always spoken very positively of the film and talked about how much she enjoyed making it. Um, so she doesn't really, you know, look, feel poorly about it. Um, speaking of Kelly Rowland, her entirely well-aged monologue against Freddie uh, <laughs> was improvised. Um, oh. Swift and Shannon were actually kind of horrified when they saw it because they were like, we did not write that. And they were afraid it was going to, you know, obviously upset and alienate um, queer fans. Uh, and they've talked like extensively in scripts about like, we did not write that. She, you know, that was an improvised line. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. I mean, so, I didn't like it when I thought it was written that way. Yeah. But it was like, ah, you could do that at the time. Now yeah. I like it even less. Yeah. So it was a weird choice. Um, the film's original ending involved Will and Lori making out um, before Freddy's blades like came out of Will's hands. Um, but this confused oh. test audiences. Um, so scrapped for what appeared in the film. Like test audiences were like, is he becoming Freddy? Like, what does it mean? So... Oh. Um, Robert Englund's makeup was so thick that he couldn't feel the heat during the, like, fire scene. Um, and when he went to get the prosthetics removed after it was over, it had bonded to his face. <laughs> Which kind of sucks. Um, one of the films that Bunsen Lake hosted at the same time was the filming of X2. Um, they were also at the lake. It appears there. If you watch that movie, you remember there's a couple extensive sequences at a lake. Yeah. Um... The cast and crew of both films actually shared a hotel um, and par, you know, extremely horrible person, Brian Singer, uh, visited the set one day as a result to get a look at what was going on because he's a fan. Oh. Um, during the asylum scene where they're looking for the hypnosil, Kersinger's costume actually caught fire due to a special effects malfunction, but being a professional stuntman, he was very calm and stood still while <laughs> people rushed on to, to put the fire out. Um, interestingly, it's that bedroom kill at the beginning of the movie, which is the most interesting and gets, at the time it was released, got the biggest reaction out of audiences, was almost scrapped because you and the producers like just did not get what it was supposed to be. Mm. And Shannon and Swift actually like acted it out for them to convince them to like put it in the film and good thing they did because it's probably one of the best, you know, I think it is, stuff, yeah. you know, practical effects in there. This is an interesting one. Blake Chapman 
and Kyle, I put Levine, Kyle Levine, um, who appears Shitty Dad and Freeberg, mm-hmm. both have small roles in Halloween Resurrection, making them the only actors to appear in a Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Halloween film. Hey, how about that? Yeah. That's kind of a cool. Yeah, good for them. Um, Gib is almost always seen in a red baseball hat. Uh, this is a reference to Carrie, PJ Soul's character, who also wears a red baseball hat throughout most of the film. And Carrie Isabel would go on to appear in the 2002 Carrie remake. That's right. How about that? Um, despite his extensive stunt work for legal reasons, K- Kierzinger was prohibitive from performing most of his own stunts. That is kind of funny. Um, and this is an interesting one. With flashbacks excluded, Freddy actually only has one kill in the whole movie. The other 23 oh. are Jason. So who is Freddy's one kill? We just talked um, about this movie and I already forgot. It's um, it's what's his nuts when the dad and Will... It's Mark, I believe. Oh, it's Mark. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you could make the argument that he's, like, puppeteering Jason a little bit. So, like, is he responsible? Uh, but, yeah. Only one direct kill. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Freddie so Freddie vs. Jason. Um definitely a very fun romp, but there's also like, you know, a little bit of layers going on here. Right. Yeah. It's not a it's not a ton. And I mean, I put this in my letterboxd review that this is kind of like peak right after 9-11 film where it's like just existential absurdism. Um, yeah. And there's actually been a lot of studies since then. Um, there's a, a, a book out from the University of Texas called In Horror After 9-11, World of Fear, Cinema of Terror. Um, there's another one um, called Post-9-11 Horror in American Cinema. And basically the trend... Excerpts of that one. Yeah. Basically the trends that they were seeing was that film covers like overall rejected films that were about 9-11, like mm-hmm. United 93, World Trade Center, even The Hurt Locker didn't get good audience interaction until after, like, the sort of Oscar buzz and that sort of thing. And, like, by and large, audiences just didn't want to engage with it, in large part because it, like, reduced a real-life traumatic event that they all experienced in real time. Yeah. Um, with You know, and turned it into a fictional disaster film, so it could never, like, capture... Yeah. that experience um so they would gravitate towards fictional horror films that featured high amounts of like interpersonal violence which is why you see saw and and the splatter porn trend but it also created this chance to have a sort of resurgence in traditional slasher films that have high body counts and and crazy ways that people die um mm-hmm. you know and you have you combine that with the the absurd existential like crap everyone was going through about like everything is chaos and there's lack of meaning um and you kind of have this story of like oh yeah the boogeymen of our youth have returned and it's almost comforting um because that we recognize in this sort of like chaotic and unpredictable world um and it's interesting yeah we can make sense of that because we we know these boogeymen these are familiar threats yeah. You know, this whole terrorism 9-11 thing, like, that's some, that's new and scary. Like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah. Well, speak, yeah, speaking of, like, being scary and sort of, like, processing 
fear, this is a good time to do one good scare. Um, what do you think is the most frightening moment of Freddy vs. Jason? I think for me, it's the boiler room, just because that's such an iconic sequence. And like when I think about crap that scared me about Nightmare on Elm Street, it's always the boiler room stuff. And, and um, you know, obviously it doesn't hit quite the same way as it did the first time. But I think that sort of like dug up some some old memories and feelings. Um, that's what I go with. Yeah, that's a that's a solid answer. Um, I think there's always going to be something spooky about uh, Freddy in the boiler room. Yeah. For me, I'm I'm always creeped out um, with uh, that moment in when they're at Weston Hills and um, I can't. Is it? I think Mark is dead by that. Whenever like all of the coma people sit up. Oh yeah, that's creepy. I find that really creepy. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a well done moment. Um yeah. Well let's move now into the view from the closet and take a quick moment to think about how we could potentially look at this movie from an LGBTQ plus lens. The only thing that comes to mind for me is that I get major lesbian vibes from Gip. Sure. I think like like physical presentation, mm-hmm. the way she's costumed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting because, you know, obviously Freddy appears in one of the, like, great examples of homoeroticism in horror, um, but there's really not a hint of that here. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. This, it's a pretty, pretty baseline hetero film for the most part. Yeah. Not a not a whole lot. So I think we'll hold up Gib. Um and Catherine, and Catherine Isabel just sort of, like, in her career, like, has played a lot of, um, like, characters that the that the queer community has, like, latched on to. Um, Ginger Snaps and uh, American Mary, that Which sort of thing. apparently Robert Englund was pretty excited that she was on the film because he really enjoyed Ginger Snaps. Oh, yeah, rock on. Yeah. Who doesn't? Um, yeah, yeah. So we'll start to wrap things up and just talk a little bit about um, the longevity and sort of the um, life of this film over the last 20 years and legacy, legacy, what is a legacy? Uh, At the time, a little bit of uh, minor awards tension, Doug Chapman, um, who was stunt double for Robert Anglin, and Glenn Ennis, stunt double for Kersinger, they were both nominated for the best fire stunt at the Taurus World Stunt Awards that year. Um, and that was for the um, the double full body burn uh, near the end of the film. Uh, and then the film itself was nominated for best horror film at the Saturn Awards, but it lost to 28 Days Later. Yeah, I see that though. Yeah, I see that. I see that. 
Uh, Bia Publishing Imprints Black Flame label published a novelization of the film two weeks before uh, it opened in theaters in a bid to generate publicity and hype, which I think is kind of strange and funny because it was already pretty hyped. I was like, oh, you're putting a novelization out to like give away the ending? Yeah. Or the movies out? I don't know. It was a different time in 2003, so it probably wasn't like well known that that was like out there and available to folks. Yeah. But strange. Strange. Um, yeah, I think overall this film is regarded like decently. Um, it is uh, one of the few times there's been um, a successful horror franchise crossover. Uh, we talked a little bit about how Ash from Evil Dead, they wanted to incorporate in a sequel that ultimately manifested in a comic ver- version, Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash. Um, Pinhead was thrown around at one point, and that didn't ultimately come to be, but I think there's lots of like fan fiction out there about what that would look like. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, this is the... Uh, end of the original timeline run of the Friday the 13th franchise. And I guess also Nightmare on Elm Street, like, his new Nightmare is, it's weird. Yeah, new Nightmare is like its own thing. From the other six films. Yeah. And this one. Because for both um, properties, the next installments are the remakes in mm-hmm. 2009 and 2010, respectively. Um, so just sort of interesting to think about there. Um, is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't brought up at this point? No, but is it time for my closing question? Yeah, I think it is time to close out with your question. Rather than ask the obvious one of who you think won or would win, <laughs> uh, I I would posit or I would ask uh, if you had to pick a third character to sort of come in at the end and break up the fight or sort of like end the fight in some kind of way, who would it be? And are we excluding like Ash and Pinhead and... I mean, you can include them if you want, but it might be more interesting to take them out, like who, who yeah. wasn't considered. Ooh, okay. So almost like a, someone comes in and it's like almost like a cliffhanger, but sort of like they're like, shut the fuck up sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a good one. I can tell you mine if you want, if you want some more. Yeah, let me ruminate for while you... My thought that would be fun, maybe a little close to Freddy, I don't know, but um, would be It. Oh, that's such a good one. Have Pennywise come in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but ooh, because all of his weird powers and how he'd like fuck with Jason, but then Jason would also like be like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um. All right. Who would I want to come in and get mixed up in all of this nonsense? 
What about someone who's got to be able to like hold their own? What about Candyman? Because mm-hmm. he he has enough of you know sort of supernatural abilities. Yeah. Um, he's got the he, hook. But he's pretty brutal. Yeah, he's got the hook. Yeah, he and he Freddie would be like. Uh, yeah, maybe Freddy vs. Jason vs. Candyman. Yeah, that could be pretty good. All right. Maybe one day. Maybe. Although, given the current state of rights and this, that, and the other for these franchises, probably not. Yeah. Um, one can dream, though. And right one can dream. They won't. Well, I think that will wrap up our discussion on Freddy vs. Jason. Uh, if you have any thoughts on this uh, winner kill all brawl, you should share them with us. Uh, Miss Mel, how can they do that? Sure. You can send us an email at splatterchatter at 66. No, at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can send us a tweet at splatterchatter666 on Twitter. Um, no vowels in there, but feel free to just Google and we'll pop right up. You can send us an ask on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave a comment on the blog at splatterchatterpodcast.com. Net. Com. Com. Splatterchatterpodcast.com. You can also find us both on Letterboxd under, uh, I believe, both our real names. Yep. So... Yep, yep, yep. We'd be happy to chat with you in any of all of those ways. Uh, Now that finishes out this episode as well as this uh, Friday the 13th special. The next Friday the 13th is in September 2024. Uh, And so when that rolls around, we will finally reach the end of the franchise as we cover the 2009 remake, Friday the 13th. And for all further Friday the 13th after that, we'll see. Uh, And then for our next episode uh, in November, um, we've got a couple ideas that we've thrown around, so we won't announce it just yet, um, just because we need to decide exactly what that's going to be. But do be on the lookout for that. And in the meantime, we wish you a safe and spooky Halloween season. Um, be sure to keep up the creep throughout it. And for now, we will say au revoir, adios, and das